millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an extended version of an interview from the Nature Podcast. To listen to the full show, go to nature.com slash nature slash podcast. As a Nature Podcast listener, no doubt the scientific method is your bread and butter. Build a theory, make a prediction and test. And so knowledge grows and we gradually improve on our old assumptions. But do you ever wonder how these methods of modern science came about? David Wooten, a historian at the University of York, argues that science as we know it was forged at the end of Europe's Renaissance, starting in around 1570. Over the course of more than a century, scholars began to challenge old authorities and even invented a new language of discovery. David has summed up the revolution in a new book called The Invention of Science. In it, he attempts to put to bed a 50-year debate. Did the scientific revolution really give birth to modern science? Reporter Lizzie Gibney first asked David where and when he thinks the revolution began. 1572 is the moment when uh, Tycho Brahe and various other astronomers, Tycho's the first, see a new star in the sky. It becomes extremely bright, it becomes brighter than the planet Venus, and it's an astonishing phenomenon because in the world, intellectual world in which Tycho Brahe lived, change in the heavens was impossible. And what Tycho Brahe set out to do was take very elementary, simple measurements to demonstrate that this new star was far further away than the moon and the sun, and therefore was in the heavens. And after six weeks or so, it began to fade away. But behind was left a hundred books discussing this phenomenon. And that's the beginning of a new astronomy, when for the first time, people began to think the astronomy they'd inherited from the ancients no longer worked, and that by making more careful observations and more accurate measurements they would be able to construct a new understanding of the heavens. So the scientific revolution, as you call it in your book, was not just about astronomy, um, but it then had a knock-on effect into other areas of what we would now call science. What happened from then on up till, up till Newton? The other as of a big development is the development of what we call the experimental method. And the first great experimentalist is William Gilbert, publishes in England in 1600 on magnetism. And Galileo picks up Gilbert's book by chance. It's given to him by some philosopher who's basically trying to toss it away. And Galileo starts doing experiments, really important experiments with pendula and with falling bodies. In the very first years of the 17th century, you get people claiming that there's a new science which is fundamentally going to transform knowledge. So it wasn't, it's not just in the knowledge, but it's in how we came about that knowledge. Is that right? It, it, it's how we came about that knowledge, which involves... 
it involves the experimental method in one in one respect. One of the fundamental things it involves is a new skepticism about things that people had always taken to be true. People had always believed there was no change in the heavens. Suddenly, this turns out not to be the case. For example, ancient Greeks and ancient Romans had all said that if you took a piece of garlic and rubbed it on a magnet, the magnet would cease to work. And right through into the 17th century, you can find people asserting that this must be the case because it's been stated by the ancient Greek and ancient Roman philosophers, and, and that's the end of the discussion. From um, the 1560s on, you get people actually, there are now lots of magnets around because they, the compass has been invented. People pouring garlic juice into compasses and showing that the compass carries on working. So for the first time, you get the awareness that a lot of inherited knowledge is unreliable and that you can't trust anything unless it's been fundamentally tested. And of course, in this period, so part of what defines it is is challenging these ancient authorities. Um, but a lot of historians of science seem to still think that authority and, and who was doing the, the experiments and, and gathering these experiences was still very important because, of course, most people are never there when the experiments actually happen. So in some sense, you are always still relying on trusting in the person who's actually doing the, uh, the experiments themselves. Of course, if I, if I look at a map and I look at the map and I say it's five miles from here to this other place and I measure it on the map, I'm trusting the cartographers. I'm trusting the reliability of the printers. In that sense, we all trust sources of information and sources of, and we, and, we, and we give them an authoritative status. When people in the 16th century said that garlic destroys the power of magnets, they were entrusting themselves to the claims of people like Pliny in ancient Rome. And they assumed that because Pliny was an important person, he'd written a famous book, then you should accept his word for it. Galileo's constantly getting in arguments with people about this. Uh, one claim was that the Babylonians had been able to cook eggs by whirling them round in slings. Uh, and they got so hot as they went through the air that they became cooked. And Galileo said, well, we've got strong people and we've got slings and we've got eggs. Let's get someone to cook an egg by whirling it around in a sling. And people said, no, 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 it was different in ancient Babylonia because the air was different or whatever. And similarly, there were people in, in the uh, 16th, 17th century saying, well, ancient garlic was more powerful than modern garlic. So ancient garlic used to, used to um, disempower magnets, even if modern doesn't. And, so there's a fundamental difference in a culture in which you assume that stories that come from people like Pliny must be true because they come from people like Pliny. And it's a culture in which you say, well, I'm going to believe Robert Boyle, for example, the great scientist, because I know when he says this to me, he's tested it himself. So one of the things that happens in the 17th century is information begins to be more carefully tested, more accurate, more reliable. And what drives that, I think, is the great technological revolution of printing, because it means you get many more sources of information and you can start comparing them, and good knowledge begins to drive out bad. And without the printing press, I think there wouldn't have been a scientific revolution. This culture of experimentation does seem to have come about during that period. So why is it then still that you felt the need to write this book, which is a, a lovely and but very lengthy argument? Who is it that, that you're um, arguing against? Well, I'm arguing against what I would call the, the orthodox position in history of science. It's an orthodox position which I think has been crumbling at the edges. It's like a sandcastle and the sea has been coming in and eating away at it. But it's still there. The castle is still visibly there. And nobody's built an alternative sort of structure in which to, with which to understand things. And, and the orthodox position is that if we pick out good science and put to one side bad science, what we're doing is making an, a judgment 
from our point of view, and that's an anachronistic judgment. What we need to do is study the past from the point of view of people at the time. If at the time they thought that alchemy, for example, was a genuine form of understanding and that you really could turn base metals into gold, which Newton believed perfectly clearly and Robert Boyle believed, then we must accept that as being as good knowledge as their knowledge of astronomy or their knowledge of uh, floating bodies or, 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 or whatever. The problem with that argument is that our ordinary understanding of the world constantly involves us looking at what outcomes are and going back and saying, ah, now we've seen the outcome. That alters how we understand what's going on. So perfectly sensible to write a history of the Second World War in which you ask, why did Hitler lose? Although it wasn't clear until 1943, say, that Hitler was going to lose. So one of the first things I have to do is argue that you can write history with the benefit of hindsight. And a lot of historians would say, you just can't do that. And to that, my reply is, if you say you can't use hindsight, then you can't understand change at all, because people never understand what's going on while it's happening. If you're going to say there's to be no use of hindsight, you're going to make history a discipline which is incapable of understanding and grappling with change and incapable of providing any useful explanations at all. It's going to become, uh, uh, in my view, a, a somewhat pointless discipline. We've spoken a lot about um, astronomy and, um, and physics. Where was biology in all of this? That's a, uh, I'm pausing to think about how to handle that question because I think on the one hand there's a, there's a sense in which biology is fundamentally part of the scientific revolution and on the other hand, you're quite right to say, where is it in all this? Because I, don't, I think it's uh, as a marginal place in the scientific revolution. But there is a way in which biology is fundamental to what happens because what the printing press brings with it is printed illustrations. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans never bothered with illustrations of text because you couldn't reliably reproduce them when you reproduced the text itself. Once the printing press comes along, you can have wonderfully detailed illustrations and you can reproduce them accurately. And in that sense, you get an evolutionary knowledge of anatomy, for example. So there is an anatomical revolution and a biological revolution, which above, above all depends upon a new detail and accuracy of representation through the result of the printing press. Crucially, in medicine, it doesn't pay off. There are no fundamentally new medical treatments until the 19th century. The medicine that Harvey performs as a doctor is still fundamentally the medicine of, of, of Hippocrates and of Galen, of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And insofar as people are trying to find new medical methods, by and large, they, they're, they're extremely unsuccessful. So overall, the idea that science was invented in this period is, is, is quite intuitive and, and compelling, I think, at least to scientists. But how do you think your book is going to go down within the history of science world? Uh, I think it's going to cause... Uh, considerable controversy and there's going to be a good deal of hostility to it. But I, I would say, I think, and this is something we've touched on in our conversation so far, that to some degree what I'm doing in the book is going through aspects of the history of science that people have known about for a long time. Gilbert on magnetism, Tycho Brahe on the, on the new star and so on. But one of the things that I'm doing that is fundamentally new, I think, I'm showing that there's the emergence of a whole new language for thinking about science. It begins with the word discovery. And if you take the word discovery, it's first used in its modern sense in Portuguese in about 1488, 1490. When uh, Columbus comes back from America, he doesn't have a word for discovery in Spanish or in Italian or in 
Latin. Uh, but the word discovery enters all those languages and enters very quickly English and Dutch and German because what's been claimed is that Columbus has made a fundamental discovery. He's found something that wasn't supposed to be there, a whole, a whole new continent, the continent of America. The discovery of America was, was the first of these, discovery of something that was impossible according to traditional thinking. That's the first moment when new, what we call evidence, new evidence destroys old theories. That's the first moment it becomes clear that new facts, as we call them, can trump old arguments. Facts in the modern sense of objective realities in nature don't exist until, uh, in English, the middle of the 17th century. And I was, I've written the book before I realised this, the emergence of the word theory. You can't imagine Newton producing his uh, account of gravity without him thinking, I'm producing a theory. And yet theory in that sense is not until the 1660s that people began to talk about theories. Now that new language is the language which we still use to do science. And it's the language in which we think about what scientific understanding is. And that language is put in place in the 1660s and 1670s, and it marks the crystallization of a new way of thinking, because it's the language with which you can think about knowledge that is reliable, but can yet in the future be improved. That was historian David Wooten talking with Lizzie Gibney. His book, The Invention of Science, is on sale at all good book places from the 17th of September. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.